Hey, don't you judge us. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah yeah, wrote it for us. <laughs> it's good theme music. It is. I'm not ashamed. And you and you like don't, you don't know the theme music. Fade out. Uh huh. Oh come on. Oh. I'm just impressed that you listened to it in the first place. Yeah. I didn't know you did. <laughs> All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And here we are at the uh, Sam Estates Intertube Rentals and Compound mm -hmm. uh, for the first time ever with a live studio audience. <laughs> and uh, I, for one, am very excited to be here. I feel that my star is rising quickly. The stars are right, as it were. The, the stars are right. We've got um, a microphone. We have a microphone. <laughs> it uh, looks kind of professional. It has, like, like, fuzzy stuff on it. Like, like we are... This is a legitimate yeah. setup right yeah. here. <laughs> we have a legitimate setup. This is... We are one step away from, from full stardom. Well, well, two steps away. Two steps We away. need two mics. Like, three mics. Total. Well, yeah, yeah. Two. Okay. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. We need two more. Yeah. yeah. And then we'd be stars. Would it be in bad taste to say that this could go viral? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so with the preliminaries uh, out of the way... All the pleasantries aside. Uh, Steven, I'll let you do the honors. What are we drinking right now? Well, right now we are drinking uh, the favorite drink, uh, aside from bourbon neats, uh, the preferred drink, a, uh, a Walker Percy mint julep. Uh, cheers, boys. Cheers. <sighs> Excellent. Excellent. It's pretty much straight bourbon for the first half of it. Yep. Uh, do you want to describe what this drink is? Uh, yes. Uh, it is, in essence, mint julep. Uh, you put tons and tons of sugar. Um, the prescribed amount is a half inch yeah. at the bottom of your glass. Uh, we typically don't do that because we want to live past 50. Um, and then you put some uh, a, a large amount of crushed ice. Uh, you pack it to the brim. Then you put mint leaves on the side. And then you fill the whole thing with bur bourbon and grate a bit of nutmeg on top. Yes, and the most beautiful thing about it is that the entire outside of the glass ices over instantly once mm -hmm. the bourbon goes in. But that's how you know if, if you did it right. I've tried to make this drink many a time, but never, or maybe like once, have I been able to get the frosted glass. I don't know what Stephen does. What you he know, gets it every time. What what warlockery? Uh, you know what what part of like what internal organ he sacrificed to some dark god to make it work every time, but. Whatever it did, it, 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 it worked, and well done, sir. Thank you. you. Thank you. keep saying stuff like that right before I take a drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there will be an accident. Um, but anyway, uh, yes, so here we are at the estates. Uh, and I think before we get in, into the article, you know, just given that we have a full studio audience here. Let's, uh, full, full studio audience. <laughs> excellent, Good. excellent. Um, Thank uh, you for boosting our egos. We appreciate it. We need this. Yes. 100%, yes. Um, this is everything to us. Uh, <laughs> I have no wife outside this bar. <laughs> uh, well, the the original uh, intro writing is like uh, you know in a post apocalyptic future where humans only exist as, as radio waves. Yeah, we uh, need to, we need to change that because yeah, we I keep, keep telling people look it up and they read this to me in the most confused voice ever. They're like, "What future?" To be fair, radio waves. Are you the Protestant? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, this is entirely you, your your guys's fault for having no oversight about how I run the SoundCloud channel. Yeah, that if anything, no. that's on us. I mean, I've been to it twice. Okay, <laughs> Wait, you've only been to the well. He downloaded his podcast after. Uh, I, yeah. I I hope. 
Yes. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> yeah, Sam. I all hope right. so. Um, okay, so one one brief topic that, that we were all talking about uh, before we started this this live podcast was uh, the question of dog-earing books, because we each have a very large book, Master and His Emissary, mostly in front of us. I left mine at home because I knew there would be two with an easy access, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's heavy. Um, but there was some division, I believe, or at least at the table, I'm not sure if among us, about is it okay to dog-ear books? Uh, Steven, what do you think? I would say no. I just don't think that that is in any way helpful or even necessary. I mean, like, you can just take a normal piece of paper, fold it in half twice, and you have a bookmark. It's that simple. And uh, dog-earing, mm-hmm. especially, I mean, you accidentally, you, what, what happens if you um, forget to undog-ear it, and then you have uh, confusion? That's just no good. You don't have any ambiguity with uh, bookmarks. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think we're in the dog-ear camp, right? Well, no, I think dog-earing is also terrible and unacceptable, and you. I have roughly 15 or 16 dog-ears in this one chapter. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, well, I appreciate your honesty. Hey, yep. uh, what? Uh, hypocrisy is the... What? The homage vice pays to virtue. Thank you. Save me there. That, I got you. I wasn't going anywhere. So, the what? The the homage vice pays to virtue. Uh-huh. It's some French dude said that. It's a good phrase. It's a great uh, phrase. All right, all right, all right. So 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 just to clarify though, I am I apparently in the minority here, um, thinking that dog earring is fine, and my explanation sort of rests a little bit on the reading that we'll do later. But my the short version is that what is more left brain and abstract than an undog eared book that is merely sat on a shelf in pristine condition? Its knowledge not traversed or explored no personalization visible and the dog ears is really us just exploring being for itself and itself it it it, it truly is just like the manifestation of the dizan inside of an individual you've turned the studio audience against us Uh, yes i (laughs) i can see the faces Um, (laughs) it's gone south (laughs) quick change the topic We're, we're, we are being booed, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. It's our first time being It's our booed. first time. Oh. Oh, it feels uh, great. First time. Yes, we have yes. haters now. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, with the preliminaries out of the way, we are now summarizing... Which chapter is this? I didn't actually pay attention. Uh, to chapter it, four, The Nature of the Two Worlds. Chapter four, and I believe Stephen... This is only four? Mm-hmm. We're only four chapters in this book? Yeah, oh but each, each chapter is like a million pages long, so I mean... Yeah. You're it, right. They're, they're not even a million pages long. No, they're There's like a, 70, and each page is a freaking nightmare yes, to get through. Yep, because, yep. because the font is point eight. Yep, <laughs> yep. Okay, anyway, Stephen, let's go. take us away. Okay. Uh, so, yes, chapter four, The Nature of the Two Worlds. Uh, so the project of this chapter is to discuss the kinds of world that the two hemispheres bring into being. McGilchrist notes again that the world presented to us changes our attention. Uh, quote, we pay a different sort of attention to a dying man from the sort of attention we pay to a sunset or a carburetor, end quote. Conversely, attention changes the world presented to us. Quote, the dying man may become for the pathologist a textbook for disease, or for the photojournalist a shot, both in the sense of the perceived frozen visual moment and a round of ammunition in the campaign. Attention is a moral act. It creates, brings aspects of things into being, but in, in doing so, makes others recede. Attention has consequences, end quote. And note that this interplay um, between uh, our, us creating the reality that is presented to us, this uh, kind of to and fro, will be presented a lot in this chapter. Uh, reality itself conforms to this paradigm. Quote, we neither discover an objective reality nor invent a subjective reality, but there is a process of responsive evocation, the world calling forth something in me that in turn calls forth something in the world. Here it cites, for the first of many times, M.C. Escher's piece, Drawing Hands, in which two hands are depicted drawing each other with it being impossible to determine which comes first. The paradox is implicit in all of our philosophizing, but especially in epistemology. 
which he points out that both are inextricably bound up with neuropsychology. Quote, it is not possible to discuss the neuropsychological basis of our awareness of the world without adopting a philosophical position, whether or not one is conscious of doing so. Not to be aware of doing so is implicitly to have adopted the default standpoint of scientific materialism. Unfortunately, according to this position, one of the hands in Escher's picture comes first, end quote. According to McGillicris, this default is unfortunately, is unfortunately uh, led to shape neurophilosophy. Uh, at first, it may seem that philosophy in general may escape the tyranny of the left brain, that in fact we should, uh, sorry, uh, at first it might seem that philosophy in general may escape the tyranny of the left brain, that in fact we should expect to find incompatibilities in the history of philosophy that stem from the different views of reality inherent in the left and right hemispheres. However, he notes that philosophy in general defaults its approach to that of the left hemisphere, noting its denotative language, abstract thinking, and linear sequential analysis that screams left hemisphere. He states, quote, since the type of attention you bring to bear dictates the world you discover and the tools you use determine what you find, it would not be surprising if the philosophical vision of reality reflects the tools it uses, those of the left hemisphere, and conceive this world along, sorry, and conceive the world along analytic and purely rationalistic lines. It would be unlikely for philosophy to be able to get beyond its own terms of reference and its own epistemology. And so the answer to the question whether the history of philosophy would reflect the incompatibilities of the hemispheres is probably not, end quote. Uh, indeed, it would appear that philosophy instead tries to utilize the tools of the left brain to give an account of the right hemisphere's reality. He argues that the majority of philosophical history has been pockmarked with the left brain's dichotomous thinking. He cites famous paradoxes such as the Sorites paradox, the ship of Theseus, and Achilles racing the turtle, the turtle or the Zeno's paradox. Uh, the first Sorites comes from the Greek soros, or heap, uh, notes that one grain of sand is not a heap, nor does adding one grain to that grain make a heap, nor does adding one grain to the two grains make a heap, and so on. And yet, lo and behold, heaps of sand exist. How is this possible? The second, the ship of Theseus, is a story in which a sailing ship is, ship is damaged and must, and must effect repairs. They replace one piece of the ship with another. This happens so often, uh, apparently the sailors are not the brightest, uh, that by the time they arrive to their destination, not one original piece remains. Is the ship the same one that left the original port? And finally, Zeno's paradox. Uh, it's a statement that change is impossible. Uh, there's one variation that involves Achilles racing a turtle, um, but there's another one that uh, is a lot more simple. It's that if I want to travel to a place, I must first reach the halfway point. But to reach that halfway point, I must reach halfway to that halfway point, and so on and so forth. This goes on ad infinitum, and therefore I can't travel at all. Um, he does note, interestingly enough, that uh, people suffering from uh, all the science words, uh, palinopsia, actually experiencing something like this, where motion is reduced to a series of discrete scenes, like series of still frames. And when you know it, it's right brain damage that causes this, meaning that the left brain is the one running the show. He cites one last paradox that differs from the rest, that of a Cretan seer saying, Cretans are all liars, which is of course false if true, but true if false. He notes that this, is only, this was only considered to be a real problem by later Greek commentators. I'd like to note that this isn't actually that much of a paradox. If it's false, it, it's false if true, but if it's false, it does not necessi necessitate that the statement itself is true. Feel free to replace that with this statement is false, which is actually a paradox. Anywho, uh, McGillchrist identifies the issue with the first three paradoxes as the left hemisphere's mode of thinking imposing itself on the right brain's take of reality. I won't waste too much time here, so we'll just dis consider the Sorites paradox. Quote, this results from believing that the whole is the sum of the parts and can be reached by a sequential process of incrementation. It tries to relate two things, a grain of sand and a heap as though their relationship was transparent. It also presupposes that there must be either a heap or not a heap at any one time. Either or are your only alternatives. 
This sort of left hemisphere mode of thinking rejects Gestalt, and similar issues plague Theseus and Zeno. He says that the primary problem with the Cretian paradox is that the left brain operates in a world of rules and axioms. The right hemisphere has no such illusions, and gets what the statement is getting at and moves on. Note well that in the above cases, the frustration stems from reality not conforming to our rules. The left brain's understanding of paradox is, quote, not that there must be problems in applying this kind of logic to the real world, but that the real world isn't the way that we think it is because logic says so, end quote. Here he begins to go into a brief history of philosophers who descended from these fallacious approaches, that is, with the left brain's mode of thinking. Beginning with John Dewey and William James, both of which who were concerned with the context of things. Dewey wrote, quote, I should venture to assert that the most pervasive fallacy of philosophical thinking goes back to the neglect of context. Neglect of context is the single greatest disaster which philosophic thinking can incur, end quote, and, quote, we are not explicitly aware of the role of context just because our every utterance is so saturated with it that it forms the significance of what we say and hear, end quote. Uh, I'd like to point out that David Foster Wallace's This Is Water Comes to Mind. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, to do we change in context implies change in process, things that we cannot dispense with in the philosophical dialogue. Uh, James was significant for noting the impossibility of objective evidence. McGillchrist has already discussed quite well that it is impossible for one to be truly objective, that one must stand from some viewpoint, and here you can see him clearly nodding his head in approval when James says, quote, the much lauded objective evidence is never triumphantly there, is a mere aspiration, or a really weird word that means limit or ideal notion. Uh, marking the infinitely remote ideal for our of our thinking life, end quote. He didn't despair and say that the quest for truth is therefore a bad job, just that our thinking is itself part of an interaction with the world. For Dewey, knowledge is not a passive process in which, quote, clear and certain truths were out there to be accessed by a process in which the human mind and imagination did not have to play an active part, end quote. Almost done. Uh, from these two thinkers, the German and French philosophers of the phenomenological tradition took the torch. Husserl, whom McGillchrist calls the the quote first and only oh, sorry quote first and perhaps only true phenomenologist in the strictest sense end quote was concerned about the conscious experience objectively but from a first person perspective uh, as kind of contradictory as that sounds Husserl's attempt attempts at bringing the methodology of science and Cartesian philosophy failed to explain the nature of experience in his attempts to transcend the apparent duality of subjective and objective experience he found himself rela relying on empathy as one of the fundamental ways we construct the world the objective reality exists but it is constituted by intersubjectivity. Empathy grounds our personal experiences, not only our experience of the one we are empathizing with, but of ourselves in the entire world. Note well that this is all very right-brained, both concerned with context and with empathy, whereas the left brain has no such concern with either context or empathy, which is very much reflected in the Anglo-American philosophical tra tradition. Uh, Merleau-Ponty uh, Merleau followed Husserl, carrying on the theme of context being vital to any observation. Any object of perception cannot be viewed in isolation. It exists in a context, in a nexus of relations amongst other subjects, which in turn exist in their own nexus of relations. Human beings themselves, their self-experience is embedded in the world. In an anti-Gnostic move, he contends that, quote, the human body is the means whereby consciousness and the world are profoundly interrelated and engaged with one another, end quote. This itself is related to an incompleteness in the experience of an object at any given moment. A thing exists as a sum total of possible experiences, quote, only the representational of a theoretical ideal could be, could pretend to completeness, end quote. Thus, Merleau-Ponty contends, quote, truth is arrived at through engagement with the world, not through a greater abstraction from it, end quote. An artist brings about a truth. They do not merely reflect what was there already. Uh, Merleau-Ponty's grounding of truth in experience, empathy, context, and physically instantiated self, in McGillicrest's view, 
bear all, all of these approaches bear the watermarks of the right hemisphere's mode of existence. Very wow. nice. Well, well done, Stephen. Sweet mercy, summing up, Gilchrist <laughs> is just a bear. Yeah, this chapter in particular feels very recitation-y. He's like, all right, here are all of the philosophers that are right brainy over the past X hundred years. Yeah, 150 years. Though it's interesting because like all these guys are super esoteric, and whenever I talk with anyone about them, I get very confused very easily. With with McGilchrist, he at somehow least, makes it make sense. He yes. makes it make sense at least while you're reading it, yep. and then like five minutes later you walk away and you're like what what are what are they talking about again but he does well, a really good job breaking them down well i guess then we should move to the granddaddy of all philosophers who don't make sense yes <laughs> while you're reading them and after yes. you're reading them so steven have yourself a good break for the next two-thirds of this chapter and uh nurse that walker percy <laughs> we'll do now we are talking about heidegger if you thought all of that was dramatic uh just you wait um because mcgillchrist says that the the worldview in, inside of philosophy, this, this sort of right-brain worldview trying to break out of the confines of analytical language that have sort of, you know, ruined the way that we think, um, or, or at least driven us down dark paths, is most comprehensively expressed by Heidegger. Uh, spoiler alert, I studied a little bit of Heidegger at, at uh, Oxford University. You might have heard of it. That was a flex of a sentence. Uh, yeah, was... <laughs> I, I, he was at Oxford. I was he at studied Oxford. Heidegger. I studied Heidegger. <laughs> uh, uh, a different Sam actually dragged me to a couple lectures, and I remember nothing. So yeah, it's all fine. All right, so let's get into Heidegger. McGilchrist talks about uh, Heidegger's concept of being in time, and a lot of it is simply him rehashing Heidegger uh, in his own context. So the parts of Heidegger that best apply to his thesis. Uh, so he says that the use of a term like being normally makes us think that we understand it. Um, and just using that term undermines our radical astonishment that we would actually have if we did understand what being is or, or at least realize that we can't understand it. And the same thing happens with infinity. When it's, once infinity becomes merely a number or a symbol, uh, it's much less interesting it's, it ceased being this thing of amazement and wonder that we can't wrap our minds around. And instead it's like, oh yes, uh, infinity minus one series, whatever. And you can collapse it into something that you think that you can understand. Um, he makes the obligatory uh, touch here, both here and at the end of the section, talking about Heidegger. Oh, he has his critics and his fans, um, but I'm just going to talk about the best parts of him. You know, obligatory mention, you know, he was a member of the Nazi party or whatever. So that's always a, a, a poor thing to have on your resume. Um, Probably won't get uh, hired much anymore, you know. Yes, he he does say, uh, Miguel Christ, that those who take sort of an anarcho-existentialist reading of Heidegger and want to tear down all realities, or think that all interpretations of reality are are valid, etc., are a gross misinterpretation of Heidegger in his opinion. And he talks about this spe specifically in the case of a work or a, a work of art, which can't ever be completely translated into another medium, usually language, but that it doesn't follow that the work can mean whatever you want it to mean, and that all meanings, that all meanings are equally valid. Uh, he invokes the sort of idea and definition of truth as, a, as an option that is chosen, that the chooser's faith and follow-through matters. Here, we evoke specters of uh, Michael Polanyi, um, from personal knowledge, and... Don't do... I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. Anyway... <laughs> Um, all right, so Heidegger for McGilchrist talks about being, being, so capital being, being hidden. And the true way that things are, are, are only able to be revealed through a kind of patient attention, an uncovering or a discovering. 
with a little uh, with a little hyphen there. Uh, so this conce this unconcealing is a process and a journey. It's not a thing. It's it's a it's a relationship. Truth as unconcealing is what Heidegger is concerned with. But truth is also concealing. Revealing one truth obscures others. So discovering discovering blue as electromagnetic waves slash particles obscures the majesty of a blue sky or sea for example each is a take that when you have it excludes the others to some degree further there will always be a kind of indistinctness involved in seeing truly and whenever someone insists that they have grasped the truth of something completely uh is not to is not talking about the thing in a way to be in the presence of it like heidegger talks about uh discovering truth is but rather you've created a substitute in your mind that you can grasp and move around a pretty left brainy thing to do um that you can manipulate and control so this hiddenness however doesn't make things impossible and incomprehensible meaning is there and he's talking about art here specifically it's just not extractable from the object in the way that some people would like it to be uh he uh quotes uh wittgenstein uh that quote the work of art does not aim to convey something else, just itself, end quote. Or, as my wife noted, David Jones, the uh, Catholic artist, philosopher, uh, poet, etc., et uh, said something very similar, which, talking about uh, the theory of sacramental art and poetry, is that such art and poetry is corporeal and irreducible. It's its own thing, a thing in itself, um, and it's irreducible because its meaning and effects are more than can be articulated or expressed and it always points to, to something greater and here we can insert our previous conversation about how modern art is bad because it's abstraction that depends on outside context and explanation to have its meaning insert that whole conversation right here it's like one episode back two two episodes back and one or two i mean we're, we're dunking on modern art in general or architecture but it was it was that one episode where we went deep for about uh, 45 minutes that did happen for yeah. a hot yeah. second it, it was yeah. like the music one so i think last one yeah oh yeah. Uh, yeah yeah probably last one all right so um, further, McGilker says that the way to pursue meaning, if, if, uh, this is, if that's the accurate way to put it, is highly active passivity. Uh, you know, if you want to perceive the universe's being, beingness for being for itself's sake, uh, you just got to be an active listener, you know, got to acknowledge, got to say, yeah, yeah, for sure. No, no. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, get it. And that's how you finally get at being for being self in, in, in the being, beingness, you know? Um, and, and that's Heidegger in one sentence. TLDR, guys. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> all right. So he, that's the best description of Heidegger I think I've ever heard. Thank you. Yeah, thank good. you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Ah. Um, so he draws a contrast uh, between this sort of highly active passivity and, the, and a predatory and exploitative stance on the world where you're sort of in your little consciousness bubble, your little Cartesian... Uh, uh, like robot wizard machine jumping out to grab some experiences grab some quality and then hop back in your little bubble to to think about them um and he and he contrasts that with with the idea of a self that understands that it is bound up in in a relation of care and concern with the rest of the world that it, it, it has a giving and a receiving to it and mcgilchrist says that this is in some ways uh like his hemispheric contrasts uh surprise surprise the right hemisphere is concerned with the familiar uh, the routine, but not in the way that you, it's so routine that you forget about them, but the things that you care for, the things that are part of your familia or your household, part of your world that you reference and, and uh, you like. And these things root you in your body and your place and make it clear that we are more than aforementioned Cartesian wizard machines, you know. 
Um, and that's basically his actual words. I'm just paraphrasing. Uh, he, uh, he then goes into analyzing Heidegger's example of the hammer, uh, which is a very famous example. Look it up in context of the right-left hemispheres. It's long, and we're on a schedule, so I'm going to skip it. Um, uh, he, he says, uh, or sorry, rather Heidegger says, that as things become dull and inauthentic, they are taken out of their living context. Uh, they're, they're represented in our minds like a picture, decontextualized. And this, of course, jives very well with McGilchrist and the left brain's abstraction of things. And also with the fact that when things become familiar and routine, the location of that information switches over from our right hemisphere to our left hemisphere. Um, then there's a bit about language and about how Heidegger and Wittgenstein were both at the end trying to, uh, again paraphrasing, work out honorable terms on which philosophy might surrender to poetry. Uh, and paraphrase. Uh, the fact that Heidegger was a philosopher makes it, according to McGilchrist, especially heroic because he's struggling to sort of fight against himself and his instincts in some ways, stretching language to its limits and trying to reveal what language is always trying to hide by its its nature in, in many ways. Um, and uh, Wittgenstein, he says, has many similar impulses. He's suspicious of the, of the scientific method's tendency to reduce things and offer false clarity. A quote from uh, Wittgenstein, uh, man has to awaken to wonder, and so perhaps do peoples. Science is a way of sending him to sleep again, end quote. And Heidegger more or less agrees with this and says that the West is in trouble and the big conflict of his day, capitalism versus communism, was really just two technical ways of exploiting nature that, you know, were just two sides of the same bad coin. Uh, and both were ways of forgetting about being and being for self, being, being, being Ben. Um, and so his words, his words. Uh, so <laughs> in, in those two worldviews, swift action, violent action, exploitative action are the only acceptable solutions to every single problem. And things like waiting and trying to perceive the world, become a part of it are perceived as weakness by both worldviews. Um, he then goes into, uh, Miguel Chris, that is, goes into Max, uh, Shiler, do you guys have a clue on how to pronounce this? I want to pretend like I do. Just I'm going to try to flex. Well, but I'm just going to confidently say Shiler. Uh, Shiler, who I will mostly leave to Sam, I think. Uh, but his what? No. Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. It, his section doesn't end here. This is the. This is still Shiler, I think. Oh, I thought that was all. I thought that was all Miguel Chris. Well, I guess we'll find out. Okay. Um. Anyway, so Max Shiler, the most loyal, allegedly of, uh, and the most understanding of Heidegger's proteges. Uh, and his view that emotion is irreducible, that a man is essentially a being that loves. And Shiler had this uh, argument that values are a precognitive aspect of the existing world. They're not purely subjective or even consensual. And it's not a thing that was added to the concept of society as a useful thing. And here we have, I'm not sure if, if the uh, microphone is picking that up, but this little lovely alarm clock ringing in the... Uh, alarm clock? That's a... Ringing a, in the hour. Wall clock, wall clock. Wall clock. Wall clock ringing in the hour with lovely chimes. And songs. And songs. I think it's finally... Ah, oh, it's music. It is presenting itself It's presenting to, itself. Uh, the prosody. Yes. yes. The prosody. Yes, um, and indeed. it's a clock that you really have to just experience in the whole form because if you don't... Uh-huh. I mean, the hands on it dance on the hour. They dance. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm. So you can't break it down to its constituent parts. You cannot part break that parts. down to its constituent parts. Damn. Okay. Anyway, back guys, to... Guys, I think we got this. We, 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 we got this. I, hey, guys, I'm a phenomenologist now. Did you know that? <laughs> All you have to do is say being like five times in a row, but with slightly different accent marks, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's Some it. of them you were don't. capitalized. Some of them were italicized. You have no way of knowing. Mm -hmm. And then all of them were hyphenated. All of them were hyphenated. 
It was it was one long hyphenated sentence. Um, all right, okay. So just quickly, a, a, a couple things left here. Uh, values, precognitive aspects, sort of objective maybe, but definitely not purely subjective and consensual. Uh, they are not a thing that societies add when they're useful. They're a primary fact, whatever that means. And they also form hierarchies. And Miguel Christ, of course, interprets the two ways of viewing this hierarchy of values uh, he applies this to the hemispheres. Whereas the right uh, uh, hemisphere sees lower values uh, deriving from the higher ones that they serve, the left hemisphere accounts for higher values by reference to lower values. So one is top down, one's bottom up. Left is bottom up, that's bad. Uh, so the levels, according to Shiler, are from the bottom. Um, pleasant, unpleasant. So this is, you know, utilitarian ethics. All, all just about stops here. Ew, gross. Um, yes, but I gross. utilitarian. That's like hedonistic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Utilitarian. What mm -hmm. I said. Um, <laughs> and uh, then the next level is... Can we get like a fatality <laughs> or something like that? <laughs> the, the, the next level is values of life. Uh, Lebenswerte which is things like cowardice, nobility, arrogance, humility, small-mindedness, magnanimity, uh, sort of the normal things you would think of as uh, vices and virtues. Uh, then values of the intellect, justice, beauty, truth, and their opposites, so the big boys. And then finally, at the top level, is the holy, which McGilchrist doesn't go into, but is sort of implied to be, um, I presume, sort of, you know, this attention to the world and understanding your place in the very large flow of things. Uh, so McGilchrist then says that um, because the left hemisphere primarily focuses on use by its evolutionary nature, it's focused on utility, it's focused on the bottom level of that hierarchy, and things and uh, all sorts of, of other virtues are filtered out or have to be interpreted in terms of utility, which of course destroys them, and therefore it is the right hemisphere that is necessary for affective and moral uh, engagement. And at that point, I leave it to Sam to close out this chapter. Wow. I would like to note that uh, we were discussing dividing this up, and my, the only words I had were, I'm not doing Heidegger, so thank you. <laughs> you, you took one for the team. You I broke actually, it down well. I actually very much enjoyed that, because I, I don't think, like, I'm sure I'm sure McGilchrist is making it very easy for people to understand, and I'm sure it's, I mean, okay, I, I can testify to the fact that it's when you, you have, like, a professor of, of heidegger talking about this it's so freaking hard to understand anything that they're talking about um but i will say this made me like heidegger more it it because uh, i have only ever been taught as a result of my tradition uh of you know of my my camp of philosophy that i have grown up in that heidegger is the enemy in in i was gonna ways. say is, is, so, is, so is liking is, heidegger more a good thing i don't know so i i mean if 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 nothing else i have to take a a second look and you know there's always fun things like you know, Hegel is, is is traditionally interpreted by philosophers of the left, but right Hegel is an interesting interpretation. Too. That's true. So right Heidegger. Oh, well, okay, no, that's Nazism. Never mind. Never mind. Okay, no, Heidegger's no. bad. Let's move on but, to the yeah. section. <laughs> so before I go into the section, I just want to note that considering we've never been in the same room while we're doing this, mm -hmm. I'm watching you guys, and you have these like written out essays on paper. I don't normally do this, and I'm sitting here with a little outline written on my phone. It's, it's just like little notes of things that are interesting, mm. which might be why my sections always suck. I don't think you're sucks. Uh, <laughs> no, if anything, they're probably the more interesting. We're too precise. We're too left-brained. Left-brained, yeah. I'm just... Well, no, but I'm also... I You're articulating the entirety of the argument in flowing prose versus oh. I am just hitting the important points and stripping out all the unnecessary bits. 
I mean, that's fine. I mean, my intention is just to find places to throw jokes in, so. Ah. That's the real important part of it. Mm-hmm. It's the heart of the issue. Yeah. Sam, go. Two worlds. So, um, he then goes into, he leaves the philosophy behind for basically the rest of the chapter and goes into some more practical matters. Starting off, he talks about how 20th century physicists appear to be aware that there's another reality. Almost all of the major uh, discoveries in physics in the 20th century seem to revolve around some kind of holistic, universal, that we can't quite get at, that we have to more experience. And he points to them as being a good example of the right brain truly winning out. Um, but from there, he says he's going to show some more practical examples of how the right brain um, and left brain are divided and how, in our practical experience, they provide us with different worlds. First of all, he, he talks about sight. And he divides these sections up a little bit strangely by basically talking about them in terms of questions, about questions about that phenomenon. So in terms of sight, he, he first asks the question of, are we active choosers? Do we choose what we look at? Now, the left brain wants to say, yes, we operate like a camera lens. We see something, we focus on it, and we choose to focus on that thing, and from that we draw meaning out of that thing. However, he points to how the right brain has pre-intentional processing going on, where there's a constant uh, processing of everything in our visual field, and the right hemisphere simply grabs things and sticks onto them. In fact, the left hemisphere tends to be sticky, with not wanting to move to other things that the right hemisphere is picking up as interesting. Um, the, left, the left only represents, with a little hyphen there that he likes to do, represents, represents uh, the world that the right has already presented to us. Um, he pointed out this very fun little video experiment that was done in the 19, uh, in 1999. Yes. Um, and it went viral on the internet. Maybe you've seen it. Um, where the, the, the experimenters, it's on focused um, attention or something like that. And they show a video of a bunch of basketball players dribbling a basketball around. And they say, count the number of times the basketball has passed between the white players. Uh, players in white t-shirts, that is to say. And so you watch this, and they they're passing this basketball around and you're trying to count. And then after about 30 seconds, it says, great, it was X number of times, but did you notice the gorilla? And you go back and watch it. Uh, maybe I'm spoiling this for our listeners. It's fine. Dang it, I should, okay. Do a cut in there. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, go watch it now or it will be spoiled forever for you. Spoiler alert for an Spoiler alert. like the 1970s. Yes. I mean, to be fair, it was run on me in the philosophy, in one of my philosophy classes, and it was quite the shock when I realized that, insert, like, I don't know. You're going to have to slice and dice this you little really bit. You really are. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I think I'm just going to leave it just as is. Um, uh, uh, but, but, but the one thing that I have to mention is that when Sam describes what actually happens, my father-in-law loves to LARP this in real life, which is hilarious. He, he has the full costume, yes. I can't tell if you're... No, I'm not joking. Applause from the audience. <laughs> they know. Okay. Wow. Well, I guess you've probably seen it before then. I have. Okay. Anyway, the point of the video, the punchline of this video is that it asks, have you seen, did you see the gorilla? And it replays the video. And in the middle of this whole, this basketball fiasco, a person in a outrageous gorilla costume walks into the middle of them does a little bit of a dance, beats its chest, and then dances off. 
the other side of the screen and you do not notice it the first time through because your focused attention, your left brain, McGillicrest would say, your left brain has taken over and is uh, focused only on the basketball players and won't notice something as obvious as a gorilla walking through the screen. So the right brain is the one that directs our attention and points out and, and gives us that whole picture of the left brain ultimately grabs onto things. Um, he then talks about one benefit of the left brain, which is that conscious knowledge also only exists in the left. Is all of our conscious knowledge, what we're conscious of, is what the left brain grabs onto. It's only rec uh, recognizing things as opposed to just processing them co uh, cognitively. Um, there's a little interesting bit here, which is to, he says to know requires memory, that all of our knowledge is actually just a memory of something happening, and the left brain is the one that processes that through um, repeating it, representing it to ourselves. Um, and that's just an interesting scientific side note that that's exactly how anesthesia and other drugs work, is they just slice your memory. And so a lot of times when people are having surgeries done, they process it perfectly fine. Their right brain process, processes the experience and even the pain of the experience, but it doesn't ever, it's never represented to us by the left brain. That so goddamn terrifying. Why would you tell us that? I... I didn't know. I didn't want to know. I, there are just things you want to go through your life blissfully unaware of. Oh no! I mean, like there's modern a... art. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I mean, it's just this interesting bit is that that's how that that's one thing to think the left brain for or not. I mean, if we never had the left brain, we never have pain. So there's that. But um, anyway, so that's that's the all. Left brain is a dick. <laughs> okay, so Miguel Chris disavows this position, but the more we read of this book, the more I am convinced we would all be better off if we just like had a stroke on, on our left, left hemisphere. Only yep. on the left hemisphere, though. Only on the left hemisphere. I, I, I feel like I need to walk around with a bicycle helmet that is cut in half, only, <laughs> only protecting the right, right side. <laughs> I know I'm terrified to get like like after all these examples, I'm terrified to get a right right brain in yep. in injury. The, le the left stroke would it would suck. It's like you you lose some. At least stuff. you can still like draw being a able tree. to do philosophy. Yeah. What? Like being able to do philosophy, but as we're math, learning, is that really yeah, such a loss? I oh yeah, no, yeah. I, I do want to build do philosophy math. Although no, you can do math without. Uh, that is true. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you'll, just right. Have to, you'll just instantly so know it. Apparently, McGill Chris said that the like top two uh, uh, majors that get, end up getting schizophrenia are philosophers, followed shortly by engineers. Yep. So we all know I'm hosed there. Yep, You're definitely. Done. Yep, hundred percent. All right, sorry. That's a digression. No, that's a good digression. We this has gone on for way too long i think our audience is falling asleep oh <laughs> um thanks audience and then the second part of sight or the question of sight is are we passive receivers we like to think that we see things and we just kind of receive them in the world and even if we're we focus our attention on something and we receive that thing as it is but he points to um the fact that we actually bring ourselves to this party we bring ourselves to the situation and our gaze alters the thing that we see he looks back to a bunch of ancient and renaissance literature on this subject and there's this interesting motif of your gaze being something that is cast out from your eye that to see something is not to bring it in as we think of with modern science of light coming in but it's actually to send something out to it um to to send your rays of your of your gaze out to a thing and to change it um in some way the right brain's gaze is empathetic um, while the left brain's gaze divides things, the right brain is looking at the thing and trying to trying to find the whole the whole of that thing, trying to figure out how to understand it 
as, as a whole object, while the left brain is looking at the pieces, trying to pick it apart and um, me 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 mechanize it, which is, I mean, obvious based on everything that we've read about the brain, but it is fair to say that both those different types of gazes change the object that we are looking at. Um, it also alters who we are. Uh, he goes into a several different interesting uh, scientific studies, uh, psychological studies that I won't get in here about priming, where you can prime people in certain ways by merely getting them to think about certain stereotypes before giving them uh, tests of some sort. And they will do better on the test based on what you make them think about. If you make them think of successful lawyers, they will score better on tests than if you make them think about like like high schoolers in the streets or, or, or punks or something like that. Yeah, it's, screw punks. Yes. They're the worst. That's the message that he's saying. That is his. That is the point of this chapter. That's actually the thesis of the entire book. Screw punks. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, priming studies. Interesting. Not horribly relevant here, but the point is that we are what we see changes the way that we process that thing, and even that our brain functions. Finally, he talks about shared gaze and how shared gaze can add even more meaning. Basically, when we direct somebody to that thing, they're able to. We we ascertain meaning from it by them looking at it, and they ascertain even more meaning from it, and that's a human thing but also dogs do it dogs are one of the few animals where if you point at something they will look at it a cat just looks at you like you're an idiot um which may also change you uh in a different <laughs> way. <laughs> um okay his next the next section of his books he talks about the the um fox amis or false friends um which arise when the hemispheres see the world differently basically different things different phenomena that we experience foe by the way foe yeah i didn't want to say it oh we're not we're not cutting it yeah we're leaving that in aren't we there you're cutting it you guys made fun of me for mispronouncing croquet for the longest time but that took you a long it takes me a pause every single time and you guys crucified me over my lamentable opinions on the coronavirus oh, uh, back in the day. You're so such a martyr. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see. Faux. Uh, nuclear. Nuclear. <laughs> Y'all are mean. Well done. Okay. Faux amos. Faux amis. Sure. Or false friends. These are the things that arise when the hemispheres see the world differently. And basically, think concepts that we think are very clear obvious um but actually the differences between the hemispheres are quite stark he brings up a few of these and then he finally brings the chapter in for a landing so the first concept is belief um now belief is something that we all have we all believe in certain things uh but the left sees the left brain sees the belief as a less certain thought basically when you say that you believe in something you're saying that 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 you think that thing is true but you can't confirm it and this is how a lot of us use the word belief today, is we is if you're less sure about something, you're gonna say, I believe that's true. I wanna go check it to be sure. The right brain views this in a very different way. Um, it views it, it it does not know. To, to believe in something is not necessarily to know that thing, but it in, indicates a relationship. More like how you might say to a friend, I believe in you. You can't know that that person is going to do that thing, but you are acting as if it is true. And these two, these are two entirely different ways of seeing this, but the right brain view of belief alters the world and that person. Because now you see that person in a different way. That person sees you in a different way and may very well act in, and your view of the world assumes something to be true. The left brain is breaking it down and pushing, or 
breaking down the truth while the right brain is building up a truth that you choose to bring into your world. I think that that as just like a four sentence description might be the, and I haven't read uh, Secular Age by Charles Taylor, but that mm. might be like the TLDR version is just the transition of that definition without anyone noticing. Hmm. Interesting. See, what I thought of was um, David Foster Wallace. Uh, (laughs) because you have to believe you have to believe in something yes is that that's the entire concept and milgo chris i think absolutely i think he lays his cards down with his conversation on belief here where he's saying that to believe in something is to bring it to pass in your world Mm -hmm. anyway excellent second concept will paganism it all loops back around get out of here Calling David Foster Wallace a pagan, you you heathen. He, I mean, kinda. <laughs> Thank you. He could have been. Could have been a heathen. Pagan. Pagan? Nah, he no, wasn't. I'm pagan. just saying, how many posts do you get past modern before you're back to pre? That's all I'm. Yeah, I mean that is a real question. <laughs> yeah, that, that's entirely a fair point. I think it was one of my friends who's even more into post postmodernism than I am. Uh, I actually did kind of concede, like, yeah, it actually might be more pre modern, going all the way back around, which I'm fine with. Which yeah, really, well, if anything, if he, proves my point how great it is. If he's got a shrine, I, I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah. If he's got a shrine to the stone with a little fire in the middle, like we know that he's made it. But yeah, yeah, fair yeah. Anyway, second concept. We've got four of these, but the, next, the last two are really short. Will. The left sees the will um, by looking at the world in terms of how we can use it. When you want to, will, when you will something, when you have a will for something, you want to use the world in a certain way, usually for your benefit. Um, will involves longing for an, an other, looking outside of yourself and grabbing onto that thing, that that thing that you will for or strive for. Um, he takes a tangent here into Bateson, where he talks about how knowledge, or Bateson says that knowledge is just knowledge of difference, um, that all knowledge is just knowledge of difference. Hmm. And um, seeing two different objects brings forth so, uh, their difference brings forth some greater truth, some different and greater truth than just those two objects. Um, and categorizing those things or putting them into categories or uh, that you can use strips them of that difference because you're not seeing them as just parts of a whole. You're seeing them as members of categories and they're reduced to those categories. Um, that tangent in this book, honestly, felt very spontaneous and, and ill-placed, but it was interesting, so I, I included it. Um, the right brain, however, sees humans driven by archetypes, where basically our will is to fit our experience into a larger narrative instead of breaking our experience down into simply what we want outside of ourselves. Um, Stephen, you're whispering something. David Foster Wallace. Oh. <laughs> three times. Three times. What happens when you say One David Foster time. Wallace three times in a row? Uh, you Like a bandana appears <laughs> in the mirror. <laughs> yep. Nothing <laughs> else, just a bandana. Just a bandana. Just a bandana, and it says, this is water. Aww. It's uh, right. This is water. This is water. And a bandana. And a bandana. Anyway, um, I, I thought actually of McIntyre is that the is that in his what chapter thirteen or fourteen where he talks about the the quest that we must all embark on and that we don't necessarily know the the conclusion but Artilos gives us a quest. Mm. Um, so that's why I thought when he's talking about the will and fitting our experience into an archetype into something larger but it's also inside of ourselves instead of breaking the outside down into things that we can capture and process. I, inter- interesting hot take that virtue virtue ethics is actually a very right mode um, way of thinking because it's embodied. It's part of a story that you are embedding yourself into, whereas utilitarian ethics, 
is very left brain. It's very abstract. You mm-hmm. have these abstract notions of good and evil, and you're trying to maximize one, minimize the other. Or deontological ethics, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. just as bad. Axiomatic. It's it's about uh, formulating rules that you can order your life about, but it's not embodied. These are abstract rules. Yes. Honestly, I mean that 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 also just links right into a critique of the trolley problem as an attempt to do anything with ethics, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, that was the original. Uh, case I, yeah I, I philip foot made the um that this is completely a stupid way to think about ethics but mm-hmm. yeah yeah links it all comes back around wow we, we, back, we got back to foot that's mm-hmm. he hasn't even mentioned her yet has he i really hope... i feel like she's come up once has she i don't know I don't we'll check so. the index later yeah. um two more we can do this uh familiarity and newness uh this one basically says that both parts of the brain or both half of the brain capture this these concepts but from different dispositions where the right brings energy by um by having the familiar through a lived experience you you something's familiar you're energized by it because you've lived it it's part of your your existence the left brain simply uh represents it to yourself in terms of information familiarity is just is dry it's just more information it's familiar data because after all everything the left brain processes is technically familiar it's been processed already once and so there's never there's never any new energy to something that is coming into your world because everything is just has already been there and finally activity and passivity um basically he describes the right as um impassive but really this is um but, but really, he realizes that, that him describing the right as impassive and just kind of letting things happen is just how the left describes it, because the left doesn't actually have a will that it's an overall will. It's looking at the right brain, um, observing the whole, and saying that it's not interrogating it enough, and therefore is impassive. So he's basically calling out his own left brain in that section, which was kind of funny, I thought. Hmm. Um, finally, conclusion. The left brain wants to use things. It's in, it boils down the world to how it can be used and what the purpose is. Um, it's not to it, it's um, it's it basically abstracts the world um, and finds the pieces and how they can be used clearly and for its own power. Um, the world of the left brain is a closed brain. The the right sees the world sees the individual and sees the individual's place in that world. It's a lived in world that the right brain brings forth, and these two are completely different worlds i think that he makes that case very strongly here if he hadn't already before i read this chapter i was already convinced that left and right brain brought forth different worlds um just by his earlier work but Mm -hmm. this completely solidified that um now moving into his next chapter he says he asks quote can all this tell us something about the nature of the brain i think so the left bring things brings things into meaning but the right knows things not um by not knowing them necessarily, but by seeing the whole and the precious little. That's a chapter. That was a chapter. Another bear of a chapter. All right, could we get a short round of applause for all of we summarizers up here? That's very much patting ourselves on the back. Little. (laughs) Thank you. Um, That was the book. It really was. So I'm I'm glad you brought up that kind of already being convinced that the the two... um, brain or two sides of the brain are kind of presenting different worlds to us because i one thing i was actually really grateful for um i noticed about halfway through the chapter um reading this i i kept myself i kept falling myself i kept falling into the thought well wait you're just describing two modes of thinking like what what does this have to do with right brain brain left brain and then realizing 
his previous three chapters have all been pretty consistently proving that no, this is not just two different paradigms of thought. This is two different parts of you. Um, this is two different sides of you that are both approaching the world in a very different way and presenting actual different worlds to you. And so it did, as, as much as we have complained about a lot of the science and kind of not, while some interesting experiments have been brought up and some interesting evidence has been brought up, like we kind of want to get to the cultural commentary and whatnot, mm. it did really make me appreciate all the homework he's done and mm. all the work he's done to present to us mm. all this um, scientific data to emphasize that this this isn't just two different ways of thinking and one is better and one is worse. This is two different ways of viewing the world. This is, these are two different mm. worlds that are being indeed presented to us. And now he's finally starting to work with a lot of the philosophical um, connotations of uh, these two worlds. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think that the, the science portion, you're right, in hindsight, really does work to show that the... As, as he's trying to explain and probably increasingly trying to explain as we move into section two, hopefully after all this time, mm. um, that we still got another couple chapters, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that the sort of contradictions in thought and the confusion that various philosophers and theologians, normal people have experienced, like, why am I like this and this at the same time? It seems really? like these are, are incompatible and not that he's explaining everything, but that he has shown one way in which we are inherently self-contradictory in some way on a very physical, biological level, and that to a degree we can trace back some of the internal consternation that we feel to real things that we can say, this actually exists in you, you're not crazy, um, there's mm -hmm. a reason that you are pulled in two different directions all the time. Did you just call philosophers and theologians normal people? No, no, no. They, okay, good. Yeah, just yeah, making good. sure. Just, they were like a third category. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. Like and, and normal people. And the peasants. Got it. And the peasants. Okay. Who should okay. never have learned never how to have read. Never have learned how to read. No. Got it. Obviously. Okay, just, I'm just making sure. No, no. I was... <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry that I even implied such a <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, no. Unless, we'll let I almost How careless of me. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, 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 mean, I feel like we, we got at a good amount of stuff there was a in lot. between each section. Yeah. So like, like, honestly, if, if we hadn't stopped, I wouldn't have been able to remember all the way back to the beginning. Word. Yeah. I do think, cut this if you want, but I do think that the, the cover of this, this episode should be the hands. Yes. 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 Agreed. I agree. Yeah. He, yeah he, he, he definitely came back to those several times. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, the interplay um, of... Our conscious shaping reality and a reality mm -hmm. and reality shaping our conscious that it, it, there mm -hmm. is no stopping point which it's funny because like this is a, a kind of a, a beat of a lot of postmodernism. Mm -hmm. um is that reality is subjective based on your experience and throughout most of middle school high school and some parts of college some parts of college was moderately friendly towards postmodernism but most of it was pretty hostile i was told constantly like postmodernism is the enemy um mm -hmm. whereas now especially looking at it through this lens if you take it with a grain of salt, that reality is shaped by your subjective experience. Postmodernism can be the the tool the tools it presents of subjective reality, as long as it doesn't go too far, mm -hmm. are actually pretty helpful in this. No, yeah, I, I I think that our previous experience reading McIntyre also mm. revealed in in some ways the degrees to which modernity is a villain in. The very, in the damage it's done to moral discourse and so it's like we're like oh here are all the ways in which it is harmful 
I also mm-hmm. think, and, and, and same thing for me, just fully ag- agreeing there, is just that I remember being like a little sophomore or something, or probably even more recently, if I'm being intellectually honest, and like, oh yes, the the analytical philosophers, they're the Anglo tradition, they're the logical people, they they try and name things, they're not all wishy-washy like those like those weird Frenchy continental people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, this, it's the treatment of Heidegger, the treatment of, I, I think, just sort of the project of trying to describe this very squishy thing and that's like ah but like it's so hard to describe but there's something messing up our language and there's more to it and we can really only see it in literature we can only see it in um you know phenomenological descriptions um this has made me much more sympathetic perhaps because uh the first couple chapters were you know sort of the very analytical here's the science to back up why there is squishiness like like here's how we get to the squishy that we can prove Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. something like that yeah no i mean this is going back a little bit to the to the drawing that he referenced mm-hmm. with the what was it called f Esch- uh, drawing hands yeah the M- drawing M- hands M- Escher. yeah escher's drawing hands um he used that analogy in multiple different contexts throughout the chapter which i thought was effective persuasive just, just generally good rhetoric as he used it both for you know the postmodern world and the uncertainty but he also used it to demonstrate how the left brain has no base because it's drawing itself it it, it doesn't hmm. and it's drawing itself and it's creating something out hmm. of nothing but really the thing that it's creating out of is i mean to extend his analogy a little bit would be the painter the right brain the hmm. master first giving it the idea that is then presented upon the but canvas it refuses to recognize that it comes from it something. refuses to recognize that it comes like from something that. and therefore it is going forever in a circle forever redrawing itself representing itself so mm-hmm. to speak and there you get the spiral of civilization collapse of discourses yeah, yeah. i mean mcgokers often uses uh the left brain uh, the image of the left brain being trapped in a house of its own mirrors hmm. um and it, it, it cannot escape on its own it's, the right brain is the thing that kind of pulls it out um yeah i mean it's interesting if you look at the more um uh, what's the opposite of continental philosophy? Analytical. 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 Thank you. Um, so like I, I got into philosophy uh, via Alvin Plantinga, who is like the the man when it comes to, or at least one of the man, uh, man, uh, one of the man, one of the man, man. one of the men, uh, one of the old white dudes. Um, that, uh, yeah, I know. Cancel. Cancel. Um, hashtag. <laughs> uh, <laughs> please no, don't. No, I love Alvin no, Plantinga. No, no. Um, there, there was there, there was a question Stephen and I had is. Should we? Are we gonna cancel Heidegger? Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, it's like, like, just on an objective front, it is like the weird lefties that have kept him uncanceled all this time, which is kind of ironic. It is. He was an actual Nazi, although my my roommate is actually a huge fan of Heidegger, not for the reasons of him being a Nazi, but yeah, we'll cancel (laughs) my or my old roommate rather, I should say. Um, he says that there are some Heidegger scholars that actually contend that he was pretty subversive of the Nazi party, even when he was in it. Um, that's when I kind of uh, say, uh, I think that, you just really like Heidegger. That sounds like really a little bit of wish it. casting. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. where I'm at. Actually, he was plotting to take them down from the inside. Exactly. And that's yes. why he write, That's wrote. why his philosophy was so confusing. In his <laughs> <laughs> He's like, if I can actually get them to believe this stuff, they'll spend all their time trying to figure out what the crap I'm saying. And not taking over the world. Exactly brilliant brilliant heidegger 
Don't cancel. He was uh, he was actually a secret hero. Were we going somewhere? I forget. You were going somewhere uh, with your analytic philosophy. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is this analytic philosophy is very detached from reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you have these like kind of bare axioms that you try to get to the the actual um, like whatever bare necessities you have of reality. Yes, insert. Uh, song from chung's book here um it's it's nice now that we can see each other and i i see sam pantomiming the the song Mm -hmm. um and then kind of building up from these abstract axioms building up this reality and it's like this that's not how life works and that's not arguably what philosophy really was meant to do and for the record i love planning and i think he did a lot of good uh for uh the philosophical tradition especially philosophy religion but analytic philosophy in general does seem to have that fatal flaw in that reality doesn't work from our bare abstractions all right all right do we have any final words on the topic or are we ready to move on to our uh what next what, topic what's the next what's the next chapter what is the next chapter uh looks like the primacy of the right hemisphere excellent ah, excellent that's, that's all i want it's that's all, all i've been waiting for all we've been waiting for is to be able to dunk on the left hemisphere even for, more as if we haven't done that as, as this, if we haven't yeah done that okay all right, so with that, let's uh, let's call the uh, the master and his emissary for the week closed and move on the to... For the month, for the year? For the year, well, oh, God, for... probably for the year, Good yeah. Good night, really? That's terrible. That's terrible. That's awful. Sam's going to be indisposed for like three months because he's off Four months. L- locked in a house reading books like a loser. What yeah. a nerd. I know. What a nerd. <sighs> okay, anyway. Um, so uh, let's make this... Uh, article touch on extremely short and then get to rants because we are pushing some time here i don't have a rant yet crap work on that oh, yeah you guys should work on that i kept thinking that i should come up with a rant and then never did i wrote mine out oh sweet uh, mercy. you actually prepared can you stop out ranting us yeah for real i'll, I'll go first i just don't uh, have anything to rant about i'm too happy no. when we come to that but anyway our article for this week which uh we all read relatively recently while on a porch uh drinking the beverage of uh, that is the uh topic the uh the, the topic of said article and probably cause too and probably cause to Word. be fair uh yeah probably several of them if if we're honest judging by the um casual talk of former almost lovers and, and such hmm. uh is bourbon neat by the venerable the the the, the beautiful the existential the sovereign way- wayfarer walker percy hmm. whose drinks we we drink now Mine's the ghost empty. in the cosmos to being lost in the cosmos i'm Indeed. so sad my drink is empty right now um all right, uh, so I guess we didn't decide who was going to summarize it. Uh, Steven, do you want to say just a, a few words? Maybe we can all just say our impressions and then recommend the people read, go read Read themselves. our favorite quotes. Ah, yes. <laughs> Indeed. I don't have the article in front of me, though, so I won't be able to read it. Ah, uh, that will be a problem. Yep. Never mind. Um, so uh, Walker Percy in this article described it, – it's called Bourbon Neat. And I would – first of all, I would just highly recommend reading this. Uh, it's a nice, short, pithy article in which I uh, – Walker Percy describes the aesthetics of bourbon drinking rather than uh, approaching it from the uh, kind of angle of a connoisseur of talking about like what is good and and what is bad bourbon. In fact, he kind of leans into like, yeah, the bad bourbons are kind of the best ones in some way in that they evoke certain memories. Um, he is... Can I insert a bit oh, here? Yeah, of course. Um, well, actually, no, the, fav- the best bit of this is talking about the worst bourbon. Yeah. yeah the oh, worst absolutely. bourbon. Um, which is, I'm so, you can cut all this a little bit out. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to find, find where it is. <clears throat> I can hardly tell one bourbon from another, unless the other is very bad. 
some bad bourbons are more yes. memorable than good ones. For example, I can recall being broke with some friends in Tennessee and deciding to have a party and being able to afford only two-fifths of a 175 bourbon called Two Natural, whose labels showed dice coming up five and two. Its taste was memorable. The psychological effect was also notable. After knocking back two or three shots over a period of half an hour, the three male drinkers looked at each other and said in a single voice, Where are the women? I have not been able to locate this remarkable bourbon since. <laughs> Such a good quote. And it, so he, throughout this article, is concerned with the effects of bourbon, the memories created with bourbon, the context, as it were, of bourbon. Um, its ability to evoke a certain uh, feeling, a certain memory, a cer or a certain host of memories, which another hot take that I'm kind of coming up with right now, but I mean, this <laughs> is very right brain oriented uh, that the, as we approach this bourbon, I mean, I, I know for me personally, as I approach this particular drink, I am approaching a host of memories associated with drinking this particular drink on the back porch with roommates, uh, Brevin and Ansley visiting and us having it, uh, me bringing it to particular parties, us doing, uh, drinking them the other night. Um, and for him, he prefers bourbon neats rather than these particular uh, mint juleps. But for him, it is all about, and this is why he con he concludes the article with a host of memories of having either bourbon neat. Oh, yes. Oh, sorry, yeah. Uh, 1941, drinking mint juleps, famed southern drink, though in the deep south, not really drunk much. In fact, they are drunk so seldom that when, say, on Derby Day, someone gives a julep party, people drink them like cocktails, forgetting that a good julep holds at least five ounces of bourbon. Men fall face down unconscious. Women wander in the woods disconsolate and amnesic, full of thoughts of Kale Gilbran and the Limberlost. And he said that th he says that this is the best way, in, in his mind, the only true way to experience bourbon, that he looks at the connoisseur of a fine bourbon that is... You know, top of the line, um, you know, well-aged and whatnot, sitting at the, the perfect place and enjoying this the, the savor. He says that that is not the proper way to enjoy bourbon, primarily for the connoisseurship. Uh, that is not the good way, which I also would argue that the connoisseurship would be a very left brain. It's, it's taking it, taking the, the dose of bourbon for what the dose of bourbon will give in it alone instead of the context that it, it brings with it. Like looking at, like breaking down the flavors and pulling out different flavors mm -hmm. and, and, and notes. Also, I love how he just describes it as a dose of bourbon and not simply a drink. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yes. I'm, I'm proud of that. Yes, uh, good. Quote, in Kierkegaardian terms, the use of bourbon <laughs> to such an end is a kind of aestheticized religious mode of existence, whereas connoisseurship the discriminating but single-minded stimulation of sensory end organs is the aesthetic of damnation. Indeed. Word. Wow. So, as left we, brain's approach to bourbon, damnation. Damnation. And as we said in an earlier podcast, drink bourbon, make memories. Indeed. Or not in some occasions, but mostly make memories. <laughs> That's the goal. That's the goal. That is the goal, indeed. Excellent. All right. Sam, did you have anything else to add? Oh. No, just... No, no, I have nothing else to add. There's nothing that can be added to that litany. Excellent. We All right. Well, we are now in the concluding straights. Uh, I will I will do my rant, um, and oh, right. you all think of yours on the fly. 
Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so my rant is about mail. Uh, like many of us during this pandemic, I've been ordering things online as opposed to running out to the mall or whatever. And in many ways, I've come to understand a bit about why people, despite the fact that going their borders on a DMV visit and the fact that it's an inefficient, borderline archaic money hole of an institution, why so many people love the U.S. Postal Service regardless. And also mail generally, but let's stick with the USPS just for a second. Uh, it's partially a generational thing. I, I actually checked this. A morning consult, morning consult polls put public trust of it uh, which is to say that the percent of people say that they trust this institution a lot at 42%. And that's number one out of any institution or brand in, in the United States. Uh, and it's also broken, but however, however, it's broken out by generation just a little bit. So it's number one for boomers and for Gen X. It's number two for, for millennials, but for Zoomers like myself and Sam, uh, it's, num youngins. it's number yeah. 12. So it's, it's a little bit down the list. What do we trust more than... I'm so glad you asked. Ah. All right. Uh, so Zoomers have questionable judgment. Uh, we trust Google first. China. Horrible decision to, to horrible. Wait, we trust China? China? No, no. Well, not we. No, no, not no. Not we. No, no. no. Google, Google, Google in parentheses China. Like, you shouldn't trust them because China. This is my, ah, okay. this is my commentary. All right. Next, we, we trust Netflix second, uh, which, despite regular affronts to human dignity in its programming, just all over the place. Tiger King uh all the way yeah tiger king We're... love is blind arguably for yes. sure that other the other one that we couldn't even get past the trailer of. yeah that, that we can get past too, the... too hot to handle too hot to handle wow. yes <laughs> horrible and third which is a perfectly good choice is uh, amazon you know which is really just sort of another incarnation of mail and packages in the end and of course except all... faster except yep. faster except and faster. all praise lord bezos all praise all praise all right good. uh so uh Back to mail, especially in this time. I love how Steven's looking at us like the most disappointed. He's like a disappointed father over here, just like you zoomers. You, you zoomers. <laughs> I just feel so superior to you right now. I should be thanking you, if anything, for this. Your generation puts Google first too. All right, so <laughs> yeah, I would trust Google. I would trust Google over the people that are always giving me my mail late. Okay. All right, so especially in this time of pandemic and loneliness when we are all little islands of addresses whether that's email tiktok facebook steam uh accounts or physical the connections between those islands are our lifelines to the outside world and especially mail and we've been talking about being in the world communing with it connecting with it mail i think in its physical real time-consuming form defies the ephemerality of email and text just talking about this makes me want to like start a group chat, but with mail and we send print and we send printouts of our favorite memes just among each other, um, just via snail mail. Uh, so, I joined that. Yeah. So yeah. So in conclusion, uh, two cheers for mail, one for Lord Bezos, and three for being in the world even when it's in the line at the U.S. Post Office. Well done. Wow. Well done. That was a rant. That that was an excellent rant. I, that was that was one of the best. Yeah, I, I've got, I mean, I'm not sure if I can follow that up. <laughs> I've got a short rant, a very short rant. All right, Sam. Um, yes, I'm I'm frustrated with many things, but 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 ranting primarily. Um, well, it's it's not necessarily something to be frustrated about. Um, I'm getting married. <gasps> Congratulations, Sam. Woo! Thank you. Thank you. 
my fiance is one of our half of our audience actually half of the audience half of our listener yes (laughs) (laughs) so um yes um but i just have to say the wedding industry in america is truly obnoxious it's Mm. absolutely ridiculous um and Revan, you've been married. Or I have. You, uh, not have been married. You are married. Yes. So just both. Important. Both. <laughs> you've, you've done both. And um, I think you can attest that it's truly ridiculous. And foremost, for the obsession about manufacturing certain memories or experiences. And I just have to ask, why can memories simply not be manufactured? And furthermore, what is the value of manufactured artificial and Pinterest-worthy memories? What is the significance of them? Do they matter? I seriously do not know, and I'm looking to both of you for guidance here. I actually look at you here, so pictures or it didn't happen. That's my opinion. <laughs> pictures or it didn't happen. Never been married, so no opinion. Okay. Good luck. Thanks. Have fun. Thank you. That's all. It's just, it is truly astounding to navigate the world when the entire industry is focused around manufacturing and creating mm-hmm. a certain memory when you don't actually know the thing that you are searching for. To begin with, it's almost like you're out there um, lost um, on Pinterest or lost in the cosmos. Yeah. So, 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 Sam, I do have one thing to add. Uh, one, I you should know this because it's more prescient in your mind – or not prescient, present maybe in your mind than, than mine. But what is the average cost of a wedding in, in the United States? $30,000. Sweet mercy. Yeah. I don't have $30,000, Brevin. I don't either. Well, never mind. Um, close. Uh, but then, uh, <laughs> money bags, Anderson. Oh, <laughs> kidding. Um, oh, you're going to grad school. You want yeah, to no. that? Oh yeah. It's all loans. Don't worry. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the, okay. But the, but the other question is, I do know one way to for sure make excellent memories. And that is lots and lots and lots of smoke bombs. <laughs> just, just everywhere. And then takes photos through the smoke bombs. Oh, see, I was thinking bourbon. Well, yes. Well, 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 bourbon not, and smoke. Well, bourbon, bourbon and smoke. Well, no, but bourbon, it's got like kind of a parabola, like curve there. That's yeah. Because true. you, yeah, you, you, you like, you, you know, memories, memory, and then they say. I think smoke bombs off. probably. Oh, there's no same. memories. I think smoke bombs are, are a similar shape. Interesting move. Yeah. Um, <laughs> smoke bombs and bourbon. Have like, the like, same like, you know what I mean by on the psyche. Like, you know what I mean by smoke bomb. Like, like everyone's seen like the high school pictures. Like, oh, it's the red and the blue smoke and the white dress walking through it. I'm on a pier. Blah blah blah. I'm haven't... graduating high school and I'm amazing. What? No, you guys no. haven't seen this. About. This no. is such a thing. <laughs> no. Why is everyone shaking? It's a thing. Yes, the audience is sh- is nodding with me. They are 100. <laughs> no, one of the audience. Half of the audience is with, with me. I'm not saying it's a good but, thing. I'm the, saying the, it's the the a thing that exists. Half the audience is nodding with you, though, Revan. Yes, you got that. Wait. Careful, Brevin. Be part careful. That, you careful set the here. other half on you. The part that agrees and with me. And that's the part that you need to agree with you. Steven, you're red. Interesting moves all all around. I on, just I I will add that I have been uh, part of an, a number amount of weddings just because that's the stage of life I, I I've been going through. Uh, you'll you'll get there one of these days when you grow up and you know get to be the age of a millennial right now. Um, it is incredible, honestly, like how much stress a wedding is like brings to the bride and groom. That pretty it much all my friends nice. that I've talked with, they they pretty much just get to the point where it's like, yeah, I just want this to be over. I just want this to be done. It's like this is supposed to be the quote happiest day of your life, and it's stressful, and you just want it done. What the, what's what's the matter with that? Yeah, I I don't get it. Um. But then again, I don't have to. Um, <laughs> so I, I, is this I, your plan all along? This was—I've been playing the long game, guys. I don't have to deal with weddings. Stephen, 
Stephen is tacitly committing on this podcast to becoming a monk and or priest is what yep, I'm hearing. That's 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 what's going on, everyone. Well, and, and, you mean can a most... Catholic priest because he can. I mean, he, if he's a, he's if a I go to Orthodoxy, I can get married. It's you can great. marry. Yeah. yeah, it's wonderful. If I become an Orthodox monk, though, that that wouldn't. No. Wouldn't can Orthodox? Can any monk have a podcast? I know there's some. I gran- hope so. There are some good. Franciscans that have. There's a great podcast. YouTube channel. Um, it's it's it. What's it? Breaking in the habit. Breaking the habit. That yeah. Good. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's great, good. and it's just this, it's just this Franciscan monk who gets up there and talks about like like Catholic stuff. It's very good, actually. And that's and, that's actually. Yeah. And there's <laughs> it's a, just okay. Uh, hey, no. If if Thomas Merton can write super cool like autobiographies and whatever, hmm. monks should be able to do podcasts. And now yes. that I think about it, uh, Abbot Trifon has a uh, who's a Orthodox monk um, has a has a podcast. So it's it's possible. Yeah. I'm not. It's I'm, a vocation. I'm not going to podcasting. Do that. The the, the podcasting uh, yes, monk. That. Every white male between 22 and 32. <laughs> it's the <laughs> I just like to say, though, we were doing it before coronavirus. Actually, hit. yes. Let the yes. record yeah. show. Almost a year before, I think. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, we were ahead of the curve. Ahead Ooh, of the curve. We have, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. not anymore. Not anymore. No. Anywho, my rant. So I was, I was going back and forth between uh, Graham Greene, which I just finished up, uh, The Power and Glory. But I think more uh, pressing at the moment is I'm moving away from Pacific Northwest. So I'll take a moment to rant about how great the Pacific Northwest mm. is. Uh. Uh, as much as I find some of the inanity of uh, Seattle uh, with its uh, questionable at times political events and its... Uh, very strange Chaz Chop organization, which I visited. It was weird. Um, it was nice. Very, yeah, it, it was nice. It was. There were nice aspects to it. There were nice aspects to it. There were some t-shirt vendors. That was kind of cool. Uh, you art was buy, good. Yeah, the art, art was, was good. good. Was yep. it? I yes. feel like it was well, all graffiti. It was. I... All, yeah, it was all graffiti. Some of the graffiti, to be fair, was quality. Okay. But I would say not anything that would uplift the human spirit. Thank At you. least most of which would not uplift the human spirit there was actually there were a couple um of like uh like shrines to to victims of police Hmm. brutality that actually were quite moving Hmm. um that uh i I took a moment kind of stood before it like they i don't want to i certainly don't want to bash on those like there there was a a weight that i really appreciate that they were able to provide these uh these victims with um but that's getting off topic Uh, on the whole like as much as i find the inanity of a lot of seattle politics and and kind of the more liberal uh uh, worldview or what have you honestly like Pacific Northwest is a lovely place um uh Brevin uh Brevin's wife and I uh and my brother all went on a uh have we have we gone on record with Brevin's wife's name I don't think so okay no. um uh my brother and I <laughs> I just want to make sure no um, she's shaking your head no absolutely yep, not <laughs> we, are, we are not gonna do that um we all went on a on a hike a very brutal hike but a very rewarding hike in which we got to see the the lovely Mount Rainier and all of its glory and uh we got to see a, a wonderful mountain lake and just on the whole it jump uh, in the mountain lake in the... fact jump in the mountain lake we all we all did that after much cajoling um and just on the whole the Pacific Northwest has been a lovely place and uh while I'm looking forward to my next steps in Michigan Man, am I gonna miss Pacific uh, Northwest? Word. That was sweet. That was very oh, yes. wholesome. Yeah, wholesome. thanks. I, I try to keep it wholesome at times mm. when I'm not shooting myself in the foot over p- potential pandemics. Mm. That will still be the greatest rant ever. It really will be. It really will. <laughs> I want to listen to that again. I need to go listen because that. that was the week that I was out, so yep. I was. No, even it there. was. You, yeah, it was just the two of us, and I was like, yeah, you know, that's. Good point, Stephen. We'll see. A week later, it's like, okay, the entire country is going on lockdown because this is getting serious. It's like, crap. That's funny. All right. Well, 
So I believe we are going to wrap up the formal podcast there and then moving into a quick uh, Q&A session. Uh, post, Q&A post session. The, Q&A the, session. We were not told. We were not handed. We were not flipped the questions beforehand. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of required for this. I paid of... enough for this. These, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So anyway, uh, so for the first ever live Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, it's been a good time. Yeah, it's been. Yeah, it has. All right. Uh, play us out, everybody.